0: This podcast was originally recorded for DevChat TV. Hey, everybody, welcome to another podcast, another episode of Sustain Our Software. Today, we have a very short panelist. It's just me today, Eric Berry. And I would like to introduce our amazing guest today, Heath Aronson. Now, Heath is the Director of Business Planning and Sustainability in the Digital Impact Alliance Open Source Center. He also is supporting open source projects with consulting and advising in business models for sustainability. Welcome, Heath.
1: Thanks, Eric. This episode is sponsored by GitLab Commit. GitLab's inaugural user event brings together the GitLab community to connect, learn, and inspire. Speakers will showcase the power of DevOps in action through strategy and technology decisions, lessons learned, behind-the-scenes looks at the development lifecycle, and more. Learn how to innovate the future of software development by registering today. GitLab Commit Brooklyn, September seventeenth, and GitLab Commit London, October 9th. You can find it at devchat.tv slash GitLab Commit.
2: Sustainability is something that's become quite the buzzword, and everybody kind of sees it a little bit differently. And I think I think our hope kind of brings some different perspective kind of from the international development uh, field and some some projects that don't necessarily kind of come down the main open source uh, train tracks might give us some interesting perspective of a different way that we're looking at the same problems of sustainability and how we might be able to kind of share some um, interesting learnings that we found.
0: I love it. When I was uh, internet stalking you before the podcast, I, I found on your Twitter a quote that you have in your profile, which is uh, belief that the world's best software can be built in the most unlikely places. I thought, what a fantastic quote!
2: Yeah, I've um, I've used that for a number of years. Well, a, a bit of background on myself. I grew up in East Africa, and most of my career has been in uh, Middle East Africa. And kind of being in the, in the world of uh, startups, being in the world of uh, technology, you know, traveling broadly and everywhere I go, meeting incredibly smart people. And you, and you go to like the furthest corner of the world, and you'd be like, oh, my God, there are some really smart people here. And, and in our technology community, um, that's super true. Uh, I think we have, a, we have a gift for those who are like the first digital generation who've been able to kind of like live online and that we've been able to have a global community, right? Like uh, the Internet has allowed people from all over the world to kind of like connect in. And so when you go to kind of far off places, you'll find um, quite a few people who have had that digital window into the rest of the world and are you know, spectacular smart people. Yeah, about 15 years ago I uh I s- built an offshore team for um a digital agency out of Boston. And in that process, um just got to meet some, you know, outstanding, wonderful, super smart people. Spent quite a few years uh running that that offshore team. And now in in my uh, role with the Digital Impact Alliance with the UN, I have that ability to uh look and see, you know, what what's happening with open source in countries uh, you know, across Africa. What's happening in technology uh, in these countries? What's the process of digital? Behind all of that is always people, really smart, really great people. So yeah, just had this you know, ongoing argument that you know, no matter where you are, um, there's really smart people. There's people behind your software. I think even in sustainability, that's what we got to remember is that there's people behind it, right? It's not just software. If we're in these different you know, geographic locations, and we say, how do we make great software? How do we sustain great software? Well, you need great people. Where are those great people? We can go into that a little bit more, but there are often kind of prejudices and a history in international development of uh, assuming that you need a certain skill set and that certain skill set only exists in uh, specific geographies um, and often overlook the talent that is right underneath us. And not taking you know the appropriate steps to kind of you know bring that talent kind of uh, into the playground. So, so yeah, those are some issues that I think about and I care about a lot.
0: You've said a lot here, and and first I got to say thank you for for bringing this to light. Uh, in a In a previous in a previous podcast, we spoke with um, I believe it was Samson Gotti and uh, Vipil Gupta about what it's like to be a developer, open source sustainer out of. I believe South Africa. I, that was one that I wasn't on, but I was ex- very excited to hear it. What do you hear from from those developers in these areas? Do they feel like they're unheard or forgotten?
2: Yeah, I think it, it, it'll definitely be a both, right? So digital does allow us all to come and play. And when you are invited to the playground, it feels great. We meet people who... Have been able to, you know, I hate to say it, but like, like come from the village, become a software engineer, and then just connect into the world and have a, you know, just this really real and rich uh, kind of career um, that was digitally enabled. So that's on one side. At the other side, yeah, there does, you know, there remains, you know, a level of uh, of perceived uh, uh, prejudice and exclusion in, in a lot of different kind of areas uh, of diversity. And, um, you know, in my work life, the Digital Impact Alliance, you know, we've put, you know, inclusivity and everybody being able to participate really kind of at the center of our own kind of, you know, missional kind of commitments. And um, and location is one of those, where you live, where you're from, in addition to, you know, gender and sexual orientation, et cetera, which are all very kind of important things um, to pay attention to.
0: So all of these memories are flooding back to me when we spoke out at a sustained summit last year. And I remember being fascinated by you, by your efforts in trying to build up, and correct me if I'm wrong, but when we spoke last time, you were trying to build up uh, teams or developer teams in these remote areas and help them build companies and help them kind of become sustainable themselves. Does that sound right?
2: Yeah, I think, um, I think prior to my previous role, that was my kind of full-time thing. Um, I've owned and continue to own, a, you know, a software company with offices in Nairobi and in Amman, Jordan. But in, um, you know, in very real and tangible ways, in in our in our work, you know, maybe, maybe we should take a step back and, um, you know, and talk about the types of, you know, projects that that we're um, that we're trying to support. We can go into more detail in a second.
0: I am wondering, when you work with developers in these areas, do they view the problems differently, meaning when they think of what to build, do they look at more of the local problems that they're trying to solve? The things that they think about, I mean, are they building stuff like time trackers and that stuff, or are they more interested in um, building solutions? And the reason I ask this is, you know, me being a privileged white male in, in Utah, I view software development in a very specific way of Entrepreneurship and how can I make an impact in, in in you know in in this crazy economy that we live in? Whereas perhaps those that are in you know South Africa or, or wherever they might be um, in 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 all those parts, maybe they view things a little bit differently. And when they're thinking about how they can use their talents to make an impact, perhaps it's not building those tools that you know might go out to the mass market. Can you speak to that?
2: Uh, yeah, I think I think that it's a lot of things all at the same time and a little bit more extreme, right? So when, I think anybody who's spent, you know, significant time with developers in Africa are like, oh my God, you guys have so many ideas, right? And they're things that you'd never think about, they're locally context specific, they're solving problems that are right there at hand. Like, you know, you, you, you go out for, you know, coffee or a beer, like the ideas just flow and flow and flow. And they're great. They're outstanding, right? But then we spin back over to sustainability. And yes, a privileged white male in Utah probably has some extra capacity and time and money to be able to devote some of that extra time to pursuing these ideas, right? And so the issue of, hey, I just want a job. I need some money. I need to kind of pay my bills, support my family, is is a very, very real uh, reality. And I think we need to kind of when we're looking at talent and how do we unlock this great talent, uh, both as developers and also as the generators of ideas that can be world-changing, you have to take care of that feed the family thing first, um, or at least always kind of uh, be aware of it. And that's, and that's one of the challenges I think that we have in, um, in the great history of volunteerism within open source is how do you then balance it with the need to take care of your own personal needs. And I think uh, a lot of the kind of things we're thinking through are trying to always balance uh, those two things, right? How do you unlock that, that inner creativity and support it, maybe uh, maybe through a startup, et cetera? Uh, and how do you make sure that people um, have security, job security, uh, not just for money, but also for, for career progression?
1: You
0: present a very interesting question and I'm gonna turn that back on you. You've obviously thought a lot about this. How do you find that balance and how do you enable the financial growth and how do you become sustainable in, in this environment?
2: Yeah, I think another another interesting thing to kind of think about and bring up is the difference between uh, a person as an individual and a person as part of a community or as part of a team. And, and when you're an individual, you've got to kind of balance all those things themselves. I mean, you know, in the world of open source, we do have, you know, the, you know, the stories of the guy in the garage, right? They're, they're one-person stories. And that's not really, you know, scalable in most contexts, right? Like, it's very hard to do a one-person, you know, software company or a one-person um, startup, right? You kind of got to do things in community. And so it, when we start to look at things in, in terms of uh, teams and how teams can kind of do things together, then I think you can begin uh, to unlock um, a lot more. So you could i mean it's it's simple things like you know um, having a ten or twenty percent time to work on your own things, uh, but you have a job right so there's some other ideas that we've you know uh, played around with where developers come in and work on open source projects and you take care of that paycheck thing by giving you like you absolutely have a guaranteed income right but then and then finding channels to to then be able to bring out um, you know, the creative and then, and then plug it in, into something, you know, there's yeah, ways that we can you know, structure and try to do that.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the, um, we'll talk a lot about the digital impact Alliance. Is that geared to solve these issues?
2: Yeah. So the digital impact Alliance is housed at the UN foundation and it was, um, it was conceived uh, fairly recently um, based on some challenges of the international donors, those who give big money to try to solve, you know, global problems. And, you know, for many years, I'd say 10, 15, maybe even 20 years, they have uh, loved the idea of open source in their technology investments. They've seen technology very much as as first a uh, pathway towards um, solving social problems. Um, But now even more, it's seen as integral, like it's it, it needs to be kind of baked into everything. And so um, these big international, I mean, let's call them bureaucracies, those who move big piles of money to, you know, across the world to solve big social problems, they need technology. They fund technology. They make recommendations to, you know, national governments on technology. And the thing that I think they latched on to early about open source was it's shareable and it's free. Let's give an example. If you're gonna if you're gonna fund a let's say a uh, a healthcare statistics website in the country of Malawi, and that'll cost about three million dollars to you know put in that system. So you go and you put in the system, you're like, great, we did that. Success. Now what? Okay, we have 150 other countries who want that same system. All right, so what are we gonna do? Are we gonna spend three million dollars every time or are we going to take that one thing and share it share it across the different countries right so i think conceptually that vision is simple to understand it makes sense and i don't think anybody will say oh that's a that's a bad idea so the problem is that hasn't happened and it hasn't happened for a number of different reasons so there's a lot of kind of fragmentation in how the money is given And who it is given to, right? So you might even have this challenge where 10 different funding organizations identified that the country of Malawi needed a data statistics program. And very much in the world of startups, they all paid $3 million to several different companies who all built a similar system and launched them at the same time, right? Like startups have this problem, like they spend the money and they launched it. Like, oh my God, there's a whole bunch of startups doing the same thing. Um, It's really embarrassing if it's in the social sector and we're all kind of building something for the same thing. And so we definitely tell those stories all the time. Like, you wouldn't believe, and sometimes it's like in the same town, in the same city, um, the same things are being funded. And so the Digital Impact Alliance was set up to, at least the the software division that I work in, was set up to uh, kind of solve those problems, right? So to create some coordination, so like we at least know what we're all doing, to kind of create some common frameworks, saying like, hey, this is how we want to do it, so we're doing some work in what we're calling, uh, you know, building blocks of technology. If we can use reusable code, you know, even cross-sector, we'll be a lot better off. And then just, uh, you know, supporting the projects that are already there. And that ends up being a big part of my, my job. And when we think about uh, sustainability, um, it's a lot more for us than just the software we have to think a lot, so, so in this Malawi example, now the software is there, okay? Here's the reality, it was built by a company based in Washington, D.C. They used independent contractors um, who as soon as the project were done, they were off to their next project. So now we have a major system that's been deployed halfway across the world, which if we're honest, even though it has the open source label and it's open source, it's just custom software. And it's custom software who the people who built it are not around anymore and it 's been given to a country, and maybe they do, maybe they don 't um, have the internal uh, capabilities and capacity to be able to support that. so you take that and then you multiply that by 100 one hundred and a thousand, and you start to see you know how big this this problem really is and so so we 're looking at things as open source, but we 're looking at them a bit differently
0: that 's absolutely fascinating it 's such a novel idea to open source these infrastructural technologies to be able to share. But when you think of that, you know, what if I was one of those developers out of DC that built that s- software and I felt like, wow, I made, I made a great impact. But at the end of the day, once those developers pull out and once the the people behind that pull out, where do they go from here? So I imagine being in this role, you might, you, you probably have some some standards or some some rules for contribution, or rules for the code itself that they have to follow. Does that exist?
2: Uh, yeah, but it's not con- it's not consistent. So, so that creating of rules and the other things kind of r- related to it, and we call it open sourceifying <laughs> things. Um, okay. And so, and, and you you've heard the term open source and name only. Well, I, I guess there's two parts of that. There's the open source and name only because you're like nefarious and you want to keep control. But there's the other side of it, which we see much more often is open source and o- name it only because, you know, nobody bothered to license the code and put it on GitHub. Right. That's what that's what we see a lot more. of. There's, there's not much nefariousness. So that actually is the primary service that the open source center within the Digital Impact Alliance plays is that we, we we first work with the donors who have funded a project. And we say, OK, where's the project that you have funded? OK, there it is. Now, what? Where is it at? Like, is it is it really open source? Can other people use it? Is there, uh, so we have these, like, mini grants that we give. We, we call it, like, for the, like, dirty jobs, right? So uh, documenting, making sure that there's deployable builds, making sure that the right licenses are in place, um, IP, etc. cetera. Huge one is identifying the appropriate fiscal home. That's ended up being... A very large and very interesting um, kind of process for a lot of these uh, projects. But the belief that we have is that if, if, if we can actually open sourceify them, like truly make them open source and begin to build uh, a community and kind of doing that in two ways. One is really kind of focusing on what uh, local implementers uh, might look like, a network of implementers for the software. That would b- build up local capacity in that particular country and solve some of these um, you know, human resource uh, challenges. But at the same time, focusing on that will be able to be, be that base uh, for a community that will then come and support uh, the project. I think our sustainability challenges are that while there's a lot of money flowing into this from the international donors, so like there's money in on one side, there's not a lot of real value for a community, like let's say a corporate community or a community of cloud providers, or you know, I don't any community. Like, there's no real strength there for those communities to come in and say, "Hey, we want to support this." Right? So, you know, we, we can't we can't easily send these guys over the Linux Foundation and you know have a whole bunch of people sign up for their foundation. Um, they're not going to be excited for uh, for that. Um, so, yeah, our, our challenges are a little bit different.
0: Why do you think that challenge exists? <clears throat> Which one? Uh, well, the the challenge of people getting on board, the tech sector getting on board of this.
2: Yeah. So um, let me clarify. When it comes to excitement, oh, people are excited. They're like if we give a presentation at a conference, it's super interesting. Like we're solving really cool problems, especially kind of for the volunteer developer community. For them to be able to plug in and participate on these projects outstanding like that 's not a problem. The challenge is that um, well let's let's let 's look at how our software is a little bit different right so I think the you know we kind of try to uh, break down different types of open source projects in different ways, and you know a lot of people have done that. I think we like uh, mozilla 's uh, archetypes a lot um, and they have quite a few of them. But to, to really kind of simplify, I think you know, the two main ones that we kind of look at is like, let's say an open source project that's, let's just say in the middle of the stack, right? Software above it, software below it, somewhere in the middle. Like there's, there's dependencies each way. You know, Projects like that have a lot of dependencies. Most who are dependent on it, you know, they're motivated to, to, to come in and to support it, but it's all kind of in the software world and the code world. And then let's say, here's another class of uh, open source projects and these are let's call them the end-to-end solutions, right? So there's the WordPresses, the Sugar CRMs, um, Odoo, et cetera, right? So they're they're complete end-to-end software solutions, but they're open source, right? So in that category, the types of people who would kind of build businesses on top of that tend to be, you know, consultants and hosting companies, et cetera. Our projects are almost yeah, they are all entirely in that second category. They're end-to-end software solutions. And so then you would say, well, you have to be kind of, um, at a certain scale, you can begin to um, motivate, uh, you know, small consulting firms to, you know, take this kind of core and build a practice off of it. But there has to be sufficient promise of consulting revenue kind of coming, coming their direction to do that. And in our world, that's sometimes true. That's Very often not true. And where it's not true is where we're trying to, I guess, make it true. Get to a scale where there is a sufficient um, opportunity for small private sector players uh, to come in and participate.
0: And that's part of the goal of the uh, digital impact alliance. The
2: open source center within the alliance. Yeah, that's that's very. I mean, it, it, our our dream is to see these projects be healthy, sustainable, and just you know solving you know global social problems. Like that's that's what we want to see, and we do that through uh, the first is you know having a very broad network, just getting everybody to kind of talk to each other, right, so to reduce the duplication. We do that by um, by working with the donors, those who give money. So there's a, there's a policy element like here's a here's a good example and and we're starting to see some positive changes in this way. So if a government, let's just make up a country and put them in them. Yeah. a rich country in a part of the world has a lot of money that they're giving to another country somewhere else in the world, and that uh, wealthier country has a whole bunch of strings attached to that three million dollar you know grant that they've they've given. And one of those might be that those who build and implement the software, those who receive that contract, must be from the rich country. So they they win the contract. They build it. It would be much more appropriate. And, and the reason for that is because it, it, it ultimately comes back to taxpayer dollars. And it comes back to an earlier uh, world of development where we were primarily uh, sending stuff, right? So... It's not unreasonable if you want to send tractors to uh Mozambique and the American government is paying for those tractors it is reasonable that they would buy John Deere tractors rather than I don't know, komatsus or you know like it, it is reasonable to argue at that level, but when it comes into digital services that that the, the that same precedent has kind of carried through. But that becomes very, very problematic for the ongoing ability for a country locally to support and build uh, their own software. So, a, a very simple thing that we can begin to to advocate to the uh, to the donors is that, that there be some kind of you know in the old world technology transfer, or there w- there would be some something written in that requires the use of local implementers to be able to participate in the project a second thing is to t- is to look at the entire life cycle of the software i think a challenge that we see is things are very much seen as projects that fit into very kind of tight timelines like we're going to so say, like imagine you build this 3 million dollar uh, you know software plus implementation at a national level and you launch it then all of a sudden sustainability becomes like well who pays for the support, <laughs> like who pays next year, who pays when it breaks, who pays for new modules. And like, there's a facility for, in that, but, but, it, but these are big funding cycles with big gaps in between. You're like, okay, we're going to fund next year's. And, and so these, these are some big challenges that we see. And I think that what we feel very strongly is that if we're able to, take the software build very you know strong and robust and traditional open source communities around them that that care about the this software and sustain it that will make it easier there still will need to be places where the international donors you know put some money in for something because these are big projects that need a lot of stuff done but a, you know the healthier that the community is the better it will be sustained
0: that's fascinating um i didn't i didn't realize that that's how that's how money's spent in the tech world it's very logical to think that the products and solutions should be built where they're going to be used and maintained. That's quite a challenge that you have against you. Do you have any stories or, or cases of success I, I'd love to hear something that this organization has done that that has already been implemented or, or at least in the process of being implemented I'd, I'd love to hear the, sto- the like the, the story of success:
2: Yeah. So to be clear, we're only about a year and a half old. And let's come back in a year. We're going to have five or six pretty cool ones. Fantastic. Uh, the, we've got a couple of things underway that, that have a lot of promise, but, you know, it could fail. So we'll let you know. But, yeah, I mean, first off, the first engagement that we did was with um, the Open uh, Data Kit project, which was uh, out of the, the University of Washington. And they reflect a very kind of uh, common and actually uh, – it's different, but good. It was a little bit strange to me when I kind of came into this international development world, is that where do these, um, where do these projects often initiate? They initiate most of the time inside of NGOs and uh, academic institutions. What uh, is an NGO? A non-governmental organization. Okay. So big, uh, I guess they don't have to be big, but, but nonprofits, global nonprofits. And so my first thought, I come more from the you know the world of uh, of startups and uh, you know VCE et cetera, and then you, you look at international development, and you're like, okay, so this is strange. Like, you know, why are universities starting? Like, why is this you know grassroots human rights organization uh, in Tunisia? You know, why are they the ones starting this software? It's, it seems a little strange. And it isn't strange, and and the and the reason is is that for any kind of um, you know piece of you know uh, substantive software to be built, it needs a big push of money, right? So in the kind of the VC world, we get that, right? Like there's there's a there's a period of time where you're pouring the money in and it's not coming out, but you're building stuff, and at the end you've built something fairly substantial. So then you would say like, okay, in the international development space how does that work? What's the equivalent of it? So you're you're essentially, you're building, you know, non things. And so when, and I keep using a $3 million number, it's kind of a good number. A lot of the projects that we see are, you know, kind of in that, that space to kind of get them up and moving. Uh, you know, we've seen some that are, have 20 times that number of donated money into it. But then, of course, a lot of really tiny ones as well, as in the startup world. But the organizations that can accept these large uh, grants, these very, very large grants, you have to have the capacity and the capability and even the legal status to be able to do that. And while it differs a bit, these large nonprofits and academic institutions are able to kind of take that money in. And so it's very, very common in our world what actually to be quite honest, like most of what I am doing is figuring out the long-term organizational home for these uh, products and so they'll start inside of a nonprofit. they'll start inside of a a university so back to you know the example of of odk um, it's been a very very you know successful open source project for the kind of like data collection in the international development space it's you know it's a well-known product came out of the university of washington And, you know, it wasn't horrible that it was in the University of Washington, but um, like, you know, all organizations like, no, we're really not in the software business. You know, uh, maybe we should look at like, you know, we've incubated it, you know, we've 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 put all the initial energy into it and it's being used like the community is actually fairly robust. And so with them, we did our, you know, what I was talking about, the open source you know, of the product. Uh, coming in and making, you know, going through the process of creating a community governance, going through the process of, you know, making sure that all of the licenses and, you know, had conversations with all of those who kind of built consulting companies on top of it, making sure that they, that their voices are heard inside the community, looking at the various forks and and just creating a you know, community process for how. How first the community can become very strong and then be able to essentially roll it out and spin it out of uh, the university of of Washington, so figuring out who who would then replace uh, the university as the fiscal sponsor, how would they be able to receive uh, funds how would those funds be able to be dispersed to the community um, ODk in our world has some unique uh, advantages and that they um, that they have a very mature uh, community of contributors and so yeah, we would say that that was you know a an example of how we could very quickly come in just over a period of a couple months create a very kind of you know robust standalone kind of project with its community and then uh and then let it just thrive
0: how did you get involved in this
2: as i had said earlier i um you know i owned a software company in um with offices in africa and in the middle east and um and, and you know, we were an outsourcing kind of software services company, building mostly for U.S. based startups. Um, but in that process, had you know, s- you know, significant number of you know very talented and good developers. And this you know the startup world craze, like the silicon this and the silicon that. So. So I happen to have teams in uh, the Silicon Oasis of Jordan and in the Silicon Savannah of Kenya, and just ideas started flowing. Um, you know, Valley Money started finding its way to to Africa, which was really interesting, fun, and exciting. And 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 then in a, a new way to kind of attack these kind of same social problems. So at that time, what what I had is a whole bunch of developers, um, and so I, I retooled that company to um, essentially. Uh, provide technical support to uh, to local startups while still doing the outsourcing side of things, which then um, got me kind of fully into the what they call the impact investing space so you know vC for social enterprises and so that was kind of the world that that I was living in um, when a colleague invited me to to join this this new organization that was attempting uh, to do the same thing uh, with open source projects. Ooh, that sounds like a challenge. In Africa, yay, fun. Like, that's going to be really, really interesting. And, uh, you know, I came in kind of overwhelmed, and I uh, remain <laughs> overwhelmed. But I think you can tell from, you know, my tone in this podcast, i also pretty excited because we, we can... We can see a path forward. Like we can, we can see places for some quick wins that make a huge difference. We also see um, some uh, challenges that haven't been uh, kind of cracked yet, but we can see how they could be. And we're also pretty kind of optimistic that the types of you know problems that we'll be solving, um, you know, will also become a you know roadmap for the rest of the open source world of how they can uh, you know some creative and new ways that they can they can kind of address some of their uh, sustainability challenges.
0: Are you uh, essentially open sourcing the patterns that you're generating and making this a very public effort so that people can follow exactly how you're doing it and and learn from that?
2: Uh, yeah, we're, do- we're doing our best. We have that in, in philosophy. We have our, um, our website, which uh, people can find at osc.dial.community. Uh, and then we also have a you know public facing uh, Zulip, uh, which kind of has all of our, our kind of plans and, and our participation. There's a sustainability guide that we're that we're working on, that we will release as a you know as a as a, as a publication uh, later in this year, um, and hopefully that'll be pretty interesting.
0: The fantastic. How how big is your team, or how big is this organization? The
2: organization is um, is highly leveraged with uh, externals. A lot of people participate, um, but yeah, we're about a thirty uh, person organization. Those who, of us who are working you know specifically on the uh, you know the open source uh, software challenges, we've got seven people uh, working on it, but we uh, leverage with um, you know e- external uh, consultants, et cetera. So you know even on this podcast we can we can call out to say like you know if people are interested in this stuff, either in participating on the projects that we support. Or even consulting on them um, we do uh, we are building up uh, you know a network of uh, external consultants as well.
0: For those that might be interested in that, which I imagine quite a few will be, uh, how do they get in how do they get involved?
2: The best way is to go to just go to the you know our website and kind of f- uh, fill out the form. If they are a project um, that feels uh, like the, the, the criteria is that um, and you, you can stretch a little bit they're the, the projects that are focused on international development focused on solving um you know the un has coined a term um that the whole world has signed onto of the sustainable development goals um or the sdgs and so that is an acronym and a uh, a word that we use a lot And so things that are focused at solving the sustainable development goals it can apply for these uh so we have these 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 little grants that kind of happen all the time which are, are i call them the open source item uh, kind of things. Uh, so they're small, like yeah, 20000 uh, dollars dollar grants. Um, but even though that's a small amount of money, it comes with some uh, kind of TA from, from our team. So we would come alongside the grant recipient. We do a little bit of kind of an audit of, of where they're at, you know, provide some data statistics on kind of how they kind of benchmark uh, against other projects. But then we also provide some some direct in-kind consulting alongside those grants and figuring out legal, licensing, uh, community. We do some financial modeling, uh, should they want it, uh, et cetera.
0: Before we wrap up, we're, we're starting to come to the end of our time, but I do want to talk to you about your experience in developing business models for sustainability. I, I'd yeah. love to just hear your advice and hear your wisdom on that.
2: The very first thing that we do is we go through the process of identifying I mean, community. All right, communities at the beginning and then organizational home like who's your community who kind of owns this thing like who's responsible who's ultimate responsible both both legally let's call that the fiscal sponsor but even in terms of vision so we we started to use the maintainer language for the one who holds the primary vision uh, for the project and the fiscal sponsor who kind of has the legal and then we've added a third thing to it, which is just a catch-all for everything else, which is operational activities, organizational, blah blah blah. And so, in our projects, if it is a back to our healthcare example, if it's a healthcare uh, product in Malawi, you know, you've got to have somebody on the ground who's going and meeting hospitals and talking to them about it. Like, so there's some non-code uh, related things. And so first, we kind of split those kind of three up and we say, okay, who's responsible for each of those three things within the community? And we kind of solve them. Then from there, we say, okay, it needs to be sustained, right? So it can be um, sustained in in probably, you know, two different ways. One is if there is one primary organization and, and, you know, not a lot of others, they can build a business on top of it, or they can, if they're a nonprofit, they can continue to, you know, get the grant funding that they need, Right. So that's example one. Example two is where there is a diverse community. There's a lot of different, you know, participants um, whose needs all have to be kind of, you know, kind of thought through. And and this plays out in other uh, other parts in the open source world. So, like, let's say, you know, the the easiest way to build businesses on top of it are, you know, consulting and uh, hosting, right? So if you build a SaaS version of something, there you go. You got a business model. I think we're all struggling with, with that because if you build a SaaS business model, do just you get to do it or who, you, who, who is you? And can lots of people build that model and can it become too fragmented? And so we, we look at all of those, uh, those different considerations. And then, then from there, if we say like, okay, you, you actually have enough control to be able to build a business. And maybe you're one, one business among many who are building off of the same common core or maybe you're kind of the primary, like you're the only one. Or you're the only one in town. Regardless, l- let's start to walk through what are the different revenue streams that you can begin to generate. And so you know, we we start with SaaS. It can be a bit of a challenge because we we uh, we work in low bandwidth uh, environments. So we do think a little bit about you know offline online kinds of uh, tech that is quickly not being used anymore. Um, but we think about that kind of stuff and then we we talk about consulting. Is there a consulting model that you can that you can bring on top of that after that we've got um, we have a list of about we call them revenue um, considerations We have about fifty different things uh, that you can that you can think of and that would include you know things like advertising and um, it, it could um there's even things in there like uh, like product like product mix uh, strategy, where you have uh, one particular product that's you know really good at making money and it it is essentially your cash cow, but another one might lose money but it's really good for like your publicity and bringing people in. And if you put the two next to each other, um, you can you can do well. There's another really interesting model that that we're starting to play around with a lot, in that um, a lot of this software is uh, targeting. People who can't pay. Let's say, let's, let's call it that. So, some kind of a service, you know, for the poor. So, the start- startups have a have a, have a process for this. They call it freemium. But what does what does it look like, kind of, you know, for us? And so, um, you know, we've got one project, uh, which will not be named, that we're starting to work with, that is going to run uh, two two versions of their their SaaS product. One which is is targeting uh, poor countries, and it's going to be provided freely. And then they're building another version of it, which they will, you know, release in, uh, in the U.S. and in Europe to generate revenue. So th- there's some things like, like that. But, yeah, that's usually the starting point. And then the next thing that we do is so we talk about the 50 different revenue streams. And then we take those revenue streams and we say, OK, let's choose, let's choose like five to ten that are really kind of reasonable, like that you have a good chance of being able to do. And then, and then we have a working financial model. Where we can kind of you know put those revenue streams in, put in all sorts of different kind of scenario assumptions, and then be able to kind of see what a you know steady state uh, you know profit and loss uh, might look like uh, either for an organization or for a group of organizations kind of uh, together. So that's our process, that's how we do it. It's actually a pretty fun process, and we guide people through it uh, fairly quickly. After that, comes the really hard work of making it happen, and so we can participate in that, but it it, it is long, and um, it, yeah, it, it does. To, organizational change is hard, no matter you know kind of who you are. It becomes incredibly challenging uh, in our open source world when we've delegated the ownership across a community uh, with a lot of different interests, and that community is not really kind of, uh, you know, hitting on all cylinders, um, the projects can really, really
0: struggle. One of the things that I, I was thinking about while you, while you were, what you mentioned regarding uh, companies that are uh, essentially building alternate products for third world countries. I love that idea. I think that idea would also resonate really well with with the audience. How would people get involved in that way? Let's say I had a company that's providing a service I want to make it free for those third world countries to help support them, but I still want to make money. How, how would you recommend they, they do that?
2: Yeah, I think the best way is because, because everyone on our team geeks out about this stuff and you got to be honest, these are fun conversations to have. Oh, I'm I'm loving this conversation. <laughs> I, I don't want it to end. Yeah. The best way to get in contact with us is, is just uh, through, through the, the website, which is the osc.dial.community. And uh, just kind of, Send us a note. Send us what you're interested in. Um, and when we get thousands and thousands of requests, at that point, we won't be able to respond to them. But, but right now, just a couple of weeks, uh, we can handle.
0: That'll be a good day, though, right?
2: That will be a good day.
0: Yeah, that's a good problem to have. Heath, you've been a fantastic guest and a huge supporter of open source, a huge supporter of the community, and and somebody I'm very proud to have, have met. Where do people find you online?
2: Yeah, best places to find me. LinkedIn. I'm fairly hit traditional. My first and last name. I am on uh, Twitter, but because I participate in so many broad and diverse communities, that can confuse people. But uh, my, my handle is also my first and last name. Either.
1: Fantastic. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from the Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at Adventures com.
0: So every, every week, we end our podcast with uh, what we call picks. And picks are when we want to share something that's been impactful for us, share something that makes us unique, something that we like, maybe something we purchased, anything like that. Now, Um, I'll go ahead and share a couple of picks. First pick I'm going to share is a book that I actually started reading yesterday, and I'm already halfway through it. Uh, I'm devouring it. And the book is called The Alter Ego Effect, and that's written by um, Todd Herman. It's a fantastic book that it's so interesting because I think a lot of developers go through what they call imposter syndrome. A lot of entrepreneurs feel like failures, even though they're not. And this book helps you recognize that, it helps you identify those, those negative thoughts and label them. And it kind of walks you through essentially a way to create an alter ego that you can tap into when you need to. And that alter ego actually empowers you to do, uh, to become more successful. So it's, again, I'm only halfway through the book, but I think it's a fantastic book. So it's uh, alteregoeffect.com. And the second thing I'm going to, uh, to pick, uh, my son's behind me here on the couch playing this video game. And we actually played together. Last night we played together for two hours um, just sitting there. It's called uh, uh, Golf Clash. And, you know, I love golf as, uh, uh, you know, actual golf, getting out there and golfing. But Golf Clash is so much fun. And normally I'm not a big fan of these, um, these types of games. But this one, for some reason, is just a magical game. So I'd like to pick that as well. Heath, what about you?
2: This week has been an interesting one because I've been really, really um, kind of obsessed with my grandfather's old uh, Nikon cameras, and I don't know why I hadn't thought of it before, but but I've started uh, grabbing his old lenses and then putting them on some of my new digital bodies and kind of bringing them back to life and. You know, it, it, it meant a lot to me. My my grandfather was, uh, you know, a photographer in Africa back in the 1950s and 60s. And, uh, you know, when I was growing up, I used to spend the afternoons in his in his dark room uh, with him. And, um, and when he passed away, he had left his camera collection to me and nothing else. And so the cameras have always meant a lot, but they've always just sat on the shelf. So this week, for the first time, I'm actually using them, and it's, it's just... I don't know, there's something just energetic that happens with a lens when it's in your hand. And the fact that uh, a lens that was, you know, from the 1950s is still just, you know, able to create you know, just beautiful images um, is is pretty cool. So that's, that, that's what I'm doing this week. Fantastic.
0: Heath, again, thank you sincerely for being on this podcast. Thank you for your contributions and all the ways that you're doing, for shedding some light to the Digital Impact Alliance, the open source uh, portion of that we appreciate it. And uh, so we'll wrap this up. we'll We'll be back next week, and thank you all for listening. And also, thank you to our sponsors for for providing sponsorship on this. We appreciate it.
1: Take care, thanks. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. visit c a c h e f l y dot com to learn more.